Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, we'll be discussing one of my favorite topics. No, it's not personal finance. We're going to be talking sports. I'll be sitting down with author David Sweet as we dive into some of sports' biggest controversies, all in under an hour. So if you're not familiar with who David is, let me give you a quick background. He has launched columns for the Wall Street Journal, for NBCSports.com, and has been a writer for the LA Times, for the classic Chicago Magazine, and many other prominent publications. He has a master's in print journalism from the University of Southern California. Perhaps what David's best known for are his books. We're going to start with his book, Three Seconds in Munich, the controversial 1972 Olympic basketball final. That came out in 2019. And then David's first book, Lamar Hunt, The Gentle Giant Who Revolutionized Professional Sports, which came out in 2010. I'll include links to both of those books in the show notes. So we'll start our conversation with that dominant U.S. basketball team that was robbed of gold in the 72 games. That was largely overshadowed by the terrorist attacks on the Israeli team. And it was also the only Olympics in which the legendary runner, Steve Prefontaine, was able to compete. Then we'll get into that first book I mentioned on Lamar Hunt. And we'll talk about and learn about how he revolutionized football, soccer, tennis, and more with oil money. So listen into this wide-ranging conversation as we cover these huge controversies in sports. And we'll lead into a teaser on David's next potential project, which is gambling in sports. So wherever you're tuning in, please leave us a review. Spread the good word. Tell a friend so we can keep growing this podcast as we pursue wealth in its original meaning a state of well-being. You know, money may be one spoke of that wheel, but athletics and sports is certainly another spoke. So enjoy our conversation. Without further ado, here's David Sweet. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, thank you for being here. So I, I take it you've always had quite an interest in sports, you know, just going by the books that you've written. You're exactly right. I love sports growing up, played a lot of baseball and golf and tennis. And um, I, I still play a number of sports, including golf and squash and uh, bike and, and do other things. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's awesome. Sports to me is just so much fun. I love the competition. Uh, I love playing with my children in terms of, you know, just throwing the football around the yard. And um, so, yeah, it's been a lifelong passion of mine. That's great. And when did it kind of morph from just being an athlete, a fan of sports to actually being a writer and a documenter of sports? I guess it really happened after college. Uh, I would cover uh, high school basketball games for the local newspaper. And uh, then after I went to USC and got my master's degree, I became a sports editor in Los Angeles for a daily paper. And uh, what a great town to be a sports editor in. Um, you know, they pretty much had two teams for everything, two baseball, hockey teams, two basketball, two NFL teams at that point. And now they have two again after a long drought, uh, along with UCF, sorry, USC and UCLA. Um, so 
there was just so much to cover out there and so many great stories. Uh, yeah. And then I, you know, continued my career with the Wall Street Journal and NBCSports.com and then, and then wrote a couple of books that you mentioned. That's awesome. And I mean, how do you think sports is transitioning in today's day and age? Because I feel like we're at an impasse where forever it was, you know, the athletes go play. You know, we maybe don't know so much about them other than they're a, a phenomenal athlete, football player, basketball player, what have you. To now, it seems that athletes are athletes, but then they also have their own platform and they're trying to have a message. And you're seeing some fans that love that. They love following their favorite athlete on Twitter or then you have some other folks that say, hey, you're here to, to dribble a basketball, as was said about LeBron, and and go do so. You know, we don't want to know about your politics or a thousand other endeavors. How do you feel like kind of communicating the story? Has that changed over the years? Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, the players realize they don't need the media as much. They can go directly to the fan via social media. Uh, they can obviously have their own Twitter accounts, their own Instagram accounts, and they don't need the middleman of, of people asking them tough questions. Uh, so I think, yeah, because they are on their own more, they're able to talk about their politics more. And uh, and obviously some fans don't like that. Uh, they just and they just want the uh, athletes to talk about athletics, just like they want movie stars to talk more about movies mm -hmm. and not give their opinion on every political topic that is hot at the moment. And has that changed like your job at all? Have you felt like sometimes you stray away at all from the sport or are you more trying to always kind of reel them in and, and, and take the story just back to the game? It doesn't affect me that much because I write a column, which is more of a feature column for classic Chicago magazine, along with the Chicago district golfer in the area. And my stories are more feature-oriented, profile-oriented, uh, so I'm not out there day-to-day -day covering the athletes like uh, a beat reporter would for a team. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of what you're referring to, it, it hasn't impacted me like it would a, uh, a main uh, sports reporter for a daily newspaper. Gotcha. Gotcha. And do you prefer to, to kind of do more of those profiles? And then I want to get into your books as well. I know that um, sure. you know these are more historical events, historical teams or personas that at least you've put in the book format. Um, is that what you like to kind of go back in time and, and expose people? I'm sure there's a lot of people as we talk today about the 1972 Olympics or about Lamar Hunt. You know, there's many millennials out there that say, well, what, what happened? <laughs> you know, what right. is that? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, to your point, I mean, yeah, profiles, features. I love writing those. I love uh, conducting research and uh, interviewing people and then putting it all together. Um, so that's more my genre, which also works well for books, obviously, as opposed to being a guy who breaks news uh, about an NFL trade or that sort of thing. Um, I love sort of the more in-depth, uh, long-form storytelling. Okay. And so I want to get into the latest book that you have. Again, that's called Three Seconds in Munich. When I think when everybody hears the 1972 Olympics, they just think of the terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. and, you know, wasn't that the crazy Olympics, you know, unfortunately with the Israeli uh, players or athletes that got killed. But something else happened, as we're going to talk about with the U.S. basketball team. What I, first off, what was the inspiration behind that? Why did you decide to kind of dive headfirst into that particular story? 
So yeah. uh, I had a uh, New York, I was trying to get a New York agent to, uh, you know, sell my book to a publishing house. And I had a couple of ideas for him and he wasn't that impressed and said, you know, I need something more dramatic. And as I uncovered more on the uh, 72 Olympics and the controversial gold medal basketball game, I thought, boy, this is a, a fascinating story on different levels. And he still didn't bite, but I was able to, uh, I was able to contact the University of Nebraska Press. They, they uh, publish many sports books and pitch it myself to them. And they were excited about it. Uh, they were uh, happy to publish it. And um, again, the story in my mind, you mentioned terrorism. You have the evil of terrorism, the corruption that happened at the end of this gold medal basketball game, the heartbreak the U.S. players felt. Uh, so there's so much to it. I, I thought it's an amazing story, and I still think it is today. Yeah, I think it is. And can you tell us, because I'm sure there's a lot of people right now that are listening or watching this that are saying to themselves, what happened to Team USA? And so we know that they were cheated. Can you just kind of clarify, get some context to what actually occurred there? Yeah. Uh, so to give you some background, the uh, basketball started in the Olympics in 1936 in Berlin, and the U.S. had won every gold medal since. And so in the 72 game, they're playing the Soviet Union, who they had played against before in gold medal games and beaten. And uh, the U.S. was down the whole game, and in the last few seconds, Doug Collins, uh, a famous NBA name, stole a pass and was fouled with three seconds to go. Um, down by a point at that time, the U.S. Uh, Collins, sorry, made the two free throws and the U.S. took the lead 50 to 49 with three seconds left. And the Soviets inbounded the ball and all of a sudden there was a commotion at the scorer's table and time was called by the referee with one second left. So two seconds had been played. Uh, a Soviet assistant coach had been trying to call timeout, but he wasn't given a timeout. Um, so one second, again, should have remained. R. William J Jones, the head of international basketball, came down from the stands and said, no, three seconds remain. So he overruled the referees on the court, uh, which is against the rules. The referees control the game. Uh, it's like if you think of Adam Silver coming down during an NBA game and saying, yeah. Put, put more time on the clock. I mean, he, I assume he'd be fired or, or, you know, the fans would boo him out of the stadium. So Jones did that, and the Soviets inbounded the ball again with three seconds left. They took a long shot that missed. Three seconds had elapsed. The U.S. won the gold medal again, basically. And uh, R. Williams Jones came down from the stands again and said, no, three seconds remain. Uh, the clock hadn't been set properly, so that play didn't count. And amid all oh this, uh, the, yeah, the Soviets had brought in, uh, it was very chaotic at this point. So illegally, they brought in a substitute, um, Ivan Adeshko, who didn't check in at the scores table. And so on the last play of the game, Tom McMillan was trying to guard him. A referee told McMillan to move away. And Adesco had a clear look down the court. So he shot, put in the ball, you know, 80 feet or so down the court. Alexander Beloff was at the other end. He grabbed the ball. Two, so, uh, sorry, two U.S. defenders fell to the side. Beloff had the easiest shot of the Olympics. No one was guarding him. And he banked it in. And uh, three seconds had elapsed again. 
this time no more time was put on the clock and the Soviets won 51 to 50 for their first gold medal in Olympic basketball. Wow. That's incredible. Is this something, do you know, is there footage of this out there that there is? Yeah. If you check on YouTube, I, I looked for footage of the complete game. I couldn't find the complete game, but I did find, you know, a lot of different parts of the game out there. And definitely these, you know, that last shot is, is on there on YouTube, uh, along with the American celebration that had happened before this shot. Um, and, and, you know, and, and a lengthy look at how bad the U.S. had played for most of the game until the final few minutes when they had a massive comeback. Wow, that's crazy. And what was the gentleman's name? I guess you said he was the head of international basketball at the time? Yes, our William Jones uh, pretty much, I mean, he was the head of international basketball since 1932, so 40 years at this point. And he had been involved in every Olympic tournament. And uh, even back in the 50s, uh, Fog Allen, a famous Kansas coach, had complained. He thought uh, that R. William Jones, he, he, like during the gold medal basketball game in 52, R. William Jones had hung out with the Soviets during the game when he should have been a neutral observer. So there had been accusations that uh, Jones favored the Soviets. And he he wasn't uh, a Russian citizen or anything, but um, he just... Uh, seemed at the end of this game when the u.s lost he was quoted as saying you know they have to learn how to lose once at this point they had won every olympic game they had ever played 63 until that game well and where was our william jones from originally he that's a great question he basically grew up in italy uh and he went to college in the u.s um and uh to springfield i believe where basketball was created um, and he was an English citizen, so it was sort of a, an odd combination. Um, but yeah, he, you know, ran international basketball with an iron fist. And you look back at this game and why didn't the referees or, uh, the score people, the score table or anyone stand up to them, to him Well, they owed his job to him and they were just like, okay, well, if he says there are three seconds left, there are three seconds left. <laughs> That's it's such a crazy, crazy story. Right. And so, I mean, did anything ever come out that he was somehow kind of sympathizing with the Soviet Union or was against the U.S.? I'm sure there that would be the obvious assumption. But did anything yeah. come to light from that? Well, I mean, let me put it this way. In terms of the Soviets winning, that could only help uh increase the popularity of international basketball. Uh, and the head of international basketball was Jones. And why would it increase popularity? Because more than one team could win at the Olympics. Um, and so it, did I find information that Jones uh, favored the Soviets? Not, there wasn't a smoking gun per se. I mean, the Russians would give him a lot of gifts during the Olympics. But that's not to say the U.S. or others didn't give him gifts. But I will say uh, the U.S. protested the game. And uh, so the next morning, uh, a committee was created. And Jones again flouted the rules because the uh, people who are supposed to be part of this protest committee were people who were part of the Olympics in basketball. 
And the head of the committee was a guy from Yugoslavia whose last name was Hep. And not only was did Yugoslavia not play basketball in those Olympics, he was one of Jones' biggest drinking buddies. And that's confirmed in uh, autobiography of Jones, sorry, a biography that was written of Jones. So he put his great friend on top of this five-man committee. Three of the committee members were communist countries. Two were more favored to the U.S., Puerto Rico and uh, Italy, I believe. And the U.S. lost the protest three to two. Um, and Jones also, you know, he he acted after the game. He's like, no, I didn't ask to put time back on the clock. And then once the footage showed that he had, uh, you know, they show him up there at yeah. the scores table with, with three fingers up. Uh, he finally relented. Um, but huh. it's it just, it, you, you know, in my mind, it's the most controversial finish in sports history. Uh, you, you've never seen uh, time put on the clock, you know, twice, three times. Uh, yes. Just that, you know, for, for just sort of bizarre reasons uh, that really aren't justified. <laughs> Yeah. And then as an outcome, this is, it correct me if I'm wrong, this was the only Olympics where then the athletes, the American basketball team in this instance, actually refused their medals, correct? You're exactly right. They're uh, the only Olympic athletes in history and to this day are still the only ones to refuse their medals, which were silver medals. Um, and they had been asked over the years by the U.S. Olympic Committee and others to accept the medals. They have not. And two of them, in fact, have in their wills that their descendants cannot accept the medals either. Wow. Um, and a, an interesting sidelight to that is uh, when uh, people think about the silver medals, well, what, where are they? Uh, there are only seven that remain, and they're in Switzerland. No one knows what happened to the other five. So even if the U.S. players accepted the medals at this point, there are only seven to hand out. <laughs> That's just nuts. <laughs> And when did, um, yeah, I, I feel like as a fan of sports, I ought to know this, but when was the, the miracle on ice? What year did that occur? So that was eight years later in 1980. Okay. Uh, yeah. And again, and I was at that game. Uh, Were you really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was only 17. Um, yeah. And I was with my dad. And yeah, obviously an incredible game, a total upset with the U.S. winning. What some people forget, though, is that was not the gold medal game. That was a semifinal game and the U S still had to beat Finland to win the gold medal. Yeah. It just seems like you always, even to this day, there is maybe now we have certainly China in the mix, but it was always these two superpowers. And that's where I feel like sports is a microcosm of life where for the longest time it was, you know, the U S and we kind of portray them as all that's good and all that's righteous. And then the Soviets are now the Russian where it was, you know, those are the guys that are, maybe cheating, you know, kind of like the Rocky narrative right. of you got Rocky versus Ivan Drago. And <laughs> right. it, it's like that, that storyline is in, apparent in so many different places. And it was True. like, we kind of, it seems like we put it to bed with the miracle on ice when we upset the giant. Right. But it only adds more to that when you learn about the story in 72. And so did any, did it just kind of go away? Like, was there any, follow up to that of who's right, who's wrong, do an investigation, you know, or was it just like, okay, we'll move on because, oh, by the way, there was this terrible terrorist activity that occurred 
and sweep the rest under the carpet? Yeah, that's a good question. Basically, uh, the media was very different then, as I alluded to, in terms of uh, there was no ESPN, no Twitter. So there wasn't a heck of a lot of follow-up um, to the controversial gold medal game. Uh, the U.S. players were told that they should not reject their silver medals by Olympic Committee people and others, but they stood by their principles. Uh, the following year, the U.S. brought a protest to the International Olympic Committee saying that uh, you know the game was not fair. Uh, they even had one of the referees um, attest that you know time should not have put back been put back on the clock the way it was. Uh, they had others at the score table agree with that statement. Uh, but the when the USOC representative went in, uh, the IOC, they were just very uh, dismissive. And they said, well, and they basically said, I, we can't believe your players didn't accept the medals. You know, we are not going to overturn the result. Um, and so to this day, it hasn't been overturned. I, I doubt it ever will be. It, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Um, but I will add too, there was another factor against the U.S. in that game. There was a Bulgarian referee, uh, Artonic Arabajian, and his uh, motives were suspect, and I'll get into that in a little bit, but his calls were really bad, and I was able to sort of watch a number of them on video and sort of rewind them. So in the last three minutes of uh, international basketball at that point, any foul, the player went to the line. And at the end of the game, he called a number of fouls against the U.S. that were highly questionable. Um, and in fact, one foul, uh, the Soviet player who was fouled was sort of a, a minor player, but the player who went to shoot the free throws was their best player, Sergei Belov who ended up with 20 of the 51 points in the game. So he was, you know, by far the best player. And the Americans were pointing and saying, no, this isn't the guy that was fouled. Yet he was allowed to take the free throws. Um, yeah. And Arabajian is the guy who he, he told Tom McMillan to move away from the uh, baseline, even though Tom McMillan had every right to guard the final play at the baseline. He had done it the previous play. But Arabajian moved him away. Arabajian had allowed uh, the illegal substitute into the game. Um, and anyway, to my point of motive, after the game, he had roomed with a referee from the U.S. named Jim Bain. And Bain was saying, you know, that game was crazy. What was going on? And Arabajian told Bain that he had feared for the life of his family if the Soviets had not won the game. So, you know, yeah. I, I think. He, he, you know, the Soviets led by quite a bit for most of the game, so he, he didn't really need to do much to affect the outcome. But by the end, he, he did, uh, and he, you know, he made wow. some pretty obvious bad calls and, and some uh, bad oversights as a ref. Jeez, that's just, it's wild. And. I mean, up to that point, obviously, U.S. basketball was it. You know, they dominated. Like you said, they won every single gold up until then. Did anything change? Because, again, I think this gives us a lot of context to today, where I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, it's like the introduction to Olympic basketball was the dream team. Mm -hmm, and it right. was like, wow, this is a collection of, like, the greatest players ever that just went out and just destroyed everybody. 
And then it was kind of like, all right, this is, I guess, the way it is. America just dominates basketball. And then I can't remember when it was. There was like that sudden decline where I think we lost to Puerto Rico or something like in this, the like 05, 06, maybe around that time frame. And it just seems like it's never really been the same. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, the U.S., yeah, 63 in a row till 72. And then they won in 76. They won the gold again. Uh, 80 Olympics boycott. They didn't go to Moscow. And then they won the 84 Olympics with Jordan, Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing and some amazing players. But in 88, I think they won the bronze medal. And that got people thinking, you know, shouldn't we send our best players to the Olympics, the pros? And and then the rules changed. And and to be honest, I mean, that's what the Soviets had been doing forever. Um, Even in the 70s. They were playing pros. They were playing their pros. I mean, these guys played, you know, hundreds of games, hundreds of games a year together. When the U.S. would have college players, like in the 70s, They'd get together, say, in June and then, you know, have a training camp. And they, you know, barely played together by the time they got to the Olympics. In that 72 match, the Soviets had a, I think it was a 31-year-old player. So, you know, (laughs) and they had guys who had been in the 64 and 68 Olympics. So they just didn't even bother to abide by the rules. The U.S. did. Uh, They sent the college players. And one of the sadder parts for the 72 team is, this was their only chance at an Olympic medal because once they turned pro uh, the following year, uh, you know, they couldn't uh, compete for an Olympic medal anymore. It was against the rules. Um, So, you know, they had this one chance and uh, they were really, uh, it's just unfortunate how they got robbed. They got robbed. Exactly. And so did the rules change? Like when the dream team came about, did, did the Olympic committee say, okay, we can have, pros across the board, but just for this one particular sport? I think it was pros across the board. I, I, I don't have all the details, but that sounds right. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. was able to have, you know, Michael Jordan in his second Olympics, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, the dream team who, you know, pretty much crushed every team uh, that they competed against. So it was a whole new world. I mean, and and now these players can win three or four gold medals in their career. Yeah. Uh, you know, back in the day for the U.S., you could win one and then you moved on to the pros. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I guess somehow it all worked out in, in the wash because you look at basketball now as such a global game where even right. with the pros, that's, I think, was like the biggest embarrassment for us is when we had the NBA out there playing. And whenever that first Olympics, I'm drawing a blank, that they lost in, it was like, what are you guys doing? Like, how's this even possible? You know, we got all-stars and nobody right. can even name the other players and we ended right. up losing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's incredible. Yeah, they haven't. Yeah, I think it was it was either 04 or 08 they lost and people were stunned. Yep. Uh, but you mentioned sort of the, the international basketball. It's amazing since 1972 how it's grown. And the NBA now has you know, more than a hundred players from outside the U S and from, you know, they're from China, Africa, Europe, everywhere. Uh, so international basketball has exploded in the last 50 years. Um, and that's benefited the NBA. I mean, you look at 
sure. the guy, the guy known as the Greek freak up in Milwaukee and, and yep, how, Giannis. yes, exactly. How impressive he has been along with so many others. Um, you know, it's been a boon to the NBA to have these great players. It's not, you know, back in the sixties, I think it was, might've been all United States at that point, but now yep. they get the best of the best from around the world. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's definitely exciting to see how it's all evolved and maybe to kind of tie it all together with the kind of the U.S.-Soviet Union or U.S.-Russia dynamic with the Olympics, where it, it does seem, and I try to be unbiased, but it does seem like the Russians have on a number of occasions obviously cheated. And most recently, and I, I don't know if this is your area of expertise, but they've competed not as Russia, right? It's been like the Russia, the ROC, like the Russian Olympic you know, competitor or whatever it is. Like, didn't they circumvent, you know, the rules so that they were allowed to come back in? You, you know, and I, I, I've heard of that, but you're right. It's not my area of expertise. So I'm not sure how much I can add. Um, yeah. But yeah, they've, they've been accused of many things over the years in the Olympics. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, it's never been good. I mean, they've, yeah. uh, I think they've been the, you know, they definitely been accused of uh, illegal drug use and and cheating and other improper uh, behavior. So, yeah, yeah, it's crazy that, that I guess the Olympics have changed in good ways and bad ways. Right. Um, and then for lack of better segue, I mean, I know this is it's just such a crazy topic. Again, three seconds in Munich. It's you know literally three seconds. That was such a huge controversy. So you have that one. And then almost a decade earlier you wrote this book on football was mm -hmm. Lamar Hunt. Was that something that were you just a huge fan? And you said, I'm just going to take a deep dive into this or how did that one kind of bubble to the surface? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I had interviewed him twice before he died. Uh, he died in 2007 mm -hmm. and I interviewed him. You mentioned football, but uh, some people know him more as the founder of major league soccer. Uh, and I was with a, magazine called Sports Business Journal. And this was uh, Major League Soccer was having some troubled times. They were, uh, two teams were being disbanded basically. Uh, now Major League Soccer is in much better shape. But I, I interviewed him about that. And then I interviewed him about the two-point conversion. Uh, not everyone knows that Lamar Hunt fought for that to be, to become a rule in the NFL to allow teams to you know, not just have to kick an extra point, which he thought was pretty boring. He wanted them to have the <laughs> opportunity to, you know, try the two-point conversion. Uh, and he finally got it passed in the 1990s. He had fought for it since the 1970s. And he had, you know, why didn't people want it? And it sounded like coaches didn't want to have to make that decision. They felt, you know, they'd be blamed if they made the wrong decision. So they, <laughs> Which they, they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're more comfortable with just the extra point. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so Lamar Hunt fascinated me um, because he started so many things. He, he was the founder of the American Football League in uh, when he was 27 years old, basically. You think how young that is. Wow. And it was because he tried to get an NFL franchise, but they wouldn't let him in. Um, and so the team he founded in the AFL was the Dallas Texans, who became the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and then he, again, Major League Soccer, uh, he helped found that. And he helped its predecessor, the North American Soccer League, survive in the 70s. Most people know the NASL because Pele played for it and drew huge crowds as a player for the New York Cosmos. 
And Lamar Hunt also had a professional tennis tour, and this helped uh, open the tennis tournaments to how we know them today. Wimbledon used to be purely amateur. Uh, the U.S. Open was only for amateurs. It wasn't open, to put it another way. So these major tournaments only allowed amateurs in because they were considered sportsmen. The pros were not considered as well. Uh, but once Hunt had these, uh, you know, had these players who were pros, and some of them, let's say, had won Wimbledon the year before, and now they had turned pro, well, Wimbledon couldn't just say no pros. Uh, and it's sort of a, a lost history in this country that the amateurs were considered like the only legitimate players in tennis. Uh, so anyway, he did that. Uh, he coined the term Super Bowl. Uh, and that term was sort of laughed off at first. It just didn't sound, uh, you know, what's the word? It's just not elegant enough. It sounded more goofy than yep. anything for a big, important game. But obviously is, the name is Is stuck. it true? Uh, if I could jump in on that point, yeah. I read a, an article one time that he couldn't think of a name and his son was bouncing a super ball, like the a super right. bouncy, like rubber ball. Right. And then that's right. when it just occurred, like super ball, super bowl. Yeah. Yeah. That was Is... that's exactly right. Yeah. And then I can't remember <laughs> if it was a son or a daughter, but someone was bouncing a ball in the house. Yeah. Super ball. Sorry. Super bowl became the name. Yeah. And he mentioned it. And I think Pete Rosell, the commissioner at the time, sort of scoffed at it. And the first couple of games were called the, AFL NFL World Championship game, something along those lines. But then Super Bowl came into being, and um, and they sort of now that we, they call it Super Bowl One, Super Bowl Two, et cetera, yeah, uh, from those original games. Um, and he owned a piece of the Chicago Bulls, um, and he was he just was this amazing entrepreneur who uh, you know just really impacted the sports landscape. He gets a lot of credit for bringing the AFL and NFL together for the big merger in the 60s because the leagues were battling so much over all the football talent and, you know, salary wars where Joe Namath would get hundreds of thousands of dollars to play for the AFL. Um, and so, you know, that it was crucial to bring the leagues together so there was no more fighting for talent. Um, and, you know, the NFL today, I mean, is so far beyond any other sports league in the U.S. in terms of revenue and popularity. Sure. And I mean, the, the Super Bowls now, you look at the top broadcast of, of any year or of all time, the Super Bowls, Super Bowl every year is the biggest one at over 100 million viewers wow. and over, let's say, the top 100 broadcasts in U.S. history you know, 50 plus or Super Bowls. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And a question I have to kind of like hit the rewind sure. button a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you said Lamar Hunt started kind of this dive into sports when he was 27 years old. Right. I I'm sure a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, how's that even possible? What did he yeah. do leading up to that? You know, that he, what, was he some business magnet or did he get it the old fashioned way and inherit it? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a great point. Uh, so his father, H.L. Hunt, was the richest man in America. Okay. He, it was uh, oil money, Texas oil money. And Lamar was one of uh, his six children from his first family. He ended up having a couple of families on the side. That's a whole other story. But uh, <laughs> Lamar was fascinated by sports uh, his whole life. Um, his nickname was Games as a kid. 
And uh, he went to SMU and played on the football team there. I think he was not a first stringer, but he played against, you know, some pretty, his, some of his teammates were pretty important guys in the NFL, like Forrest Gregg. Uh, Raymond Berry was a famous receiver. Um, and he just, you know, he loved football. He loved creating things. And when he went to the NFL, uh, they just sort of laughed at him. Uh, George Hallis, the founder mainly of the NFL, the main founder, I'd say, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't want this upstart kid in the league. But then when Hunt and uh, seven others created the American Football League, the NFL noticed. And once Hunt put a team in Dallas for the AFL, the NFL put a team in Dallas the same year, the Dallas Cowboys. So yeah. instead of giving Hunt his own Dallas team, you know, what he created a league and the NFL went into Dallas anyway. So, <laughs> and so that's ultimately what started the AFL is he was not allowed to buy a team in the NFL. So he said, right. all right, I'll just take my toys and go elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He recruited <laughs> uh, seven others. They called themselves the foolish club. Uh, a couple of the others were uh, Ralph Wilson who owned the bills. Uh, Bud Adams owned the Houston Oilers that became the Tennessee Titans uh, and, uh, oh boy, I think his name is escaping me. Sonny Werblin, it might've been who owned the Jets. Uh, so all these guys, well off, obviously all of them, uh, started the AFL and HL hunt. There's a famous story, you know, well, how long can Lamar do this? And, you know, how much, how long can he just lose millions of dollars a year? And, uh, it was, you know, HL Hunt basically said, you know, it can go on as long as he wants <laughs> along, along those lines. Cause uh, Lamar Hunt had so much money. It really didn't Jeez. matter. But, but one thing that did happen, he realized with the NFL in Dallas that he, Dallas was his hometown, that he'd probably have to leave Dallas. Cause there's no way to uh, an NFL and an AFL team would both survive mm -hmm. in that city. So after the Texans won the 62 AFL championship, he moved them to Kansas City, you know, which was very painful for him because, uh, but he knew it was for the best for the league, for the growth of the league uh, yeah. to have, you know, instead of the Cowboys and the Texans fighting for fans forever in Dallas. Yeah. Huh. And so, I mean, it seems like NFL kind of, I guess, got the bragging rights at the end of the day. It's still called the NFL. Was Good AFL, point. were they a, like a losing enterprise? And hence, that's why they don't get the name anymore. It, like, Yeah, I mean, well, the NFL had been established since roughly the early 20s. So um, <laughs> so they got the name. And the NFL was the stronger league. Um, and, you know, the NFL commissioner stayed the commissioner of the whole enterprise. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it just made sense. The AFL was more of the upstart league. Um, but you know, that merger has just created a, a powerhouse in sports that again, yeah. can't, really can't be matched by any other sport in the U S yeah, it's, it's untouchable and, and something unique about football, you know, that I've always thought is it's truly American, you know, there's, there's not really, it's not like basketball, like we spoke about earlier, that's taken off around the globe. Right. Um, it's, it seems like an American game. You know, yep. when we say American pastime about baseball, you can't even say that about baseball with just how right. much international talent there is. But yeah. I mean, in football, there's nothing else. You got the NFL and then right. maybe you have NFL Europe, which is 
was just a collection of American football players that went to Europe. Right. So it's, yeah, well, that's, um, that's an excellent point. Uh, the game is not taken off outside of the U.S. And the NFL obviously hosts games in London and Mexico City and elsewhere and NFL Europe. Uh, they tried to make that a big deal. Um, but yeah, it's just, and there's been talk, oh, maybe have a Europe division of the NFL. That's a way to expand. It, it huh. seems unlikely because it just, the game sort of has to be taught to other countries and other cultures. It's not just like here in America, we play yeah. it outside, we grow up with it. We see it on TV all the time. It's ingrained in us, but not in other countries. Yeah. And I feel right now, I mean, the NFL is just like we alluded to so on fire. It's, it's the most watched sport, you know, the, the, the richest sport. And I know they always want to get bigger and better, but it's like, once you have, like, they may have found the secret sauce and it's like, I don't know if they should do too much to kind of, uh, you know, play with that. Right. And it's interesting. You mentioned that, yeah, they found the secret sauce, but now with legal sports gambling, uh, you know, will that impact uh, the secret sauce? Because a number of players have been uh, suspended. I think 10 is the number, minor players mostly, uh, because they've gambled on NFL games and other games. Uh, and it's so funny because all the pro sports were so against gambling for decades and decades. And Pete Rozelle, I'm sorry, no, it was Paul Tagliabu who uh, testified in front of Congress and you know, said this is horrible. Uh, gambling uh, should never be part of the NFL. We're against all kinds of gambling. And then all the leagues did a 180 and now they embrace it and they get uh, sponsorships who are people oh, yeah. like DraftKings and FanDuel and all of them. Yeah. You just have to wonder. So yeah, they're getting this gambling revenue in from, uh, you know, DraftKings and all these others. But if people start questioning the integrity of the games, because so many players are starting to bet because they can legally, that's going to, you know, the, the, the golden goose may be uh, killed because if the fans think some of these games huh. are rigged by the players uh, who now have access to bet on games so easily, that that's going to really, that, I mean, that would be the ruin of, of any sport, just like it almost ruined baseball with the Black Sox scandal. Yeah, it's true. I mean, because I think when you mentioned, you know, that it could ruin sports of players or the coaches actually gambling on their own game, Right. Of, of course, that would be a, a travesty. But mm -hmm. I think from the other side, if you just kind of put rose colored glasses on, it just seems like that the revenue you could bring in is endless. Because I mean, how many people oh. Sunday are tuning into a Browns game they care nothing about, but they well, said, Oh, they, I put 10 bucks on it. Now I'm glued yeah. to the TV. So no, it's, that's an excellent point. That's, uh, you know, and that was yeah. happening when gambling was illegal, except for Nevada sports gambling. I mean, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, now that, you know, I think I read something like 70 million people, uh, plan to gamble on the NFL games this year. Wow. Um, when it, you know, get these huge numbers. Yeah. They're going to watch a game they don't care about. Uh, they may have a bet on one of the teams or are hoping one of the players has more than 40 yards uh, receiving <laughs> so they win that bet. Or what the coin toss is, all this yeah. crazy stuff. Yep. And, and you can bet uh, live action. You know, there are a million bets during games you can bet on. It's not just the one bet before a game. So it's yeah. a whole new world. Yeah. 
And I wonder, I don't know if you know anything about this, but like one, how did the guys now in, in the modern day and age, the 10 that you mentioned that got caught in the NFL, mm-hmm. how do they even get caught? That's a great question. Um, I think, I mean, the leagues have obviously upgraded their, uh, you know, observation of what's going on, uh, their security of, of, you know, gambling. And I think as far as I've read, they can, you know, they can figure out even if a player is telling a, a mother or something, hey, mom, been on a game and somehow, and I don't know the details, but they can figure it out. Um, huh. And obviously if a player is using his own phone to bet, that's, you know, they can figure that out. Um, so it's, yeah. you know, and it's traceable, I guess is one way to put it as opposed to someone giving cash to an illegal bookie. And if there's not mm-hmm. a photograph or anything, that's harder to prove. But, you know, if there's a text from a player to his mother saying, Hey, put 10 bucks or it'd be more than that, put a thousand bucks on uh, the game for me, you yeah. know, I, and I don't know, I, I can't say that the NFL, you know, can spy on phones or anything, but the, you know, they have some way where they're able to figure yeah. out that, hey, something's something's off here. Uh, yeah, I imagine that's got to be tough because I, I feel like you're talking it's a do it right. Just an incredible amount of surveillance and surveillance. invasion of privacy. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, that, it's big yeah. brother. Yeah, right. Right. And again, I, I it's there. They wouldn't be allowed to spy on their phones or anything, but yeah. uh, I, I don't know if they do it more from like they have a partnership with DraftKings where the bets go in, maybe I, yeah, maybe I, you know, because I made these points, I should know more to, to sort of justify them. Yeah. I feel like the only way to, to make it legitimate would almost be something so severe, like a, like a lifetime ban or something, because right. if the player doesn't have that level of fear and they know yeah. like they could just tell their, their next door neighbor, like, Oh, Hey, I heard this right. team, the, the quarterback's not suiting up Sunday or whatever. Yeah. It's like how, you know, unless you have someone like if you're bugging their house, like how can you find everything? You well, know? no, it's a great point. And you know, yeah. yeah. Think of the trainers. Think how much they know, oh, uh, yeah. like, you know, like you know, Travis Kelsey, the trainer, the chiefs might have known before anyone else, you know, they wasn't going to play even though others in the public kept thinking maybe he would play for a couple of days, the, that trainer or any trainer on any team could put a yeah. bet down with knowledge that no one else has. And again, how easy it is these days, just on a phone, it takes, you know, 10 seconds versus trying to call up an illegal bookie or however it would have been done in the past. Yeah. So. Do you know if, uh, if any of the major commissioners right now, like Roger Goodell or, um, Silverman in the NBA, like, have any of them made a comment or an opinion one way or the other on the legalization of gambling? Well, uh, it's funny, Adam Silver in 2014 uh, had a New York Times op-ed piece uh, embracing legal gambling. And as far as I know, he was the first uh, commissioner to do so, because before that, they were all as against it as could be claiming Rightly, I think that the integrity of the game would have been compromised uh, if, you know, legal gambling existed all over the country. Uh, But now, yeah, Roger Goodell and all of them embrace it. Uh, Mm -hmm. They support it. And of course, you know, they do say, you know, we have 
parameters in place to make sure it doesn't affect the integrity of the game. And again, they love it for the the new revenue stream uh, oh, yeah. they have for advertisements uh, and for sponsorships. And uh, you know, the NFL is known for always looking for new streams of revenue, whether it be internationally or a new uh, new business in the United States. Um, and, and, and every league is like that. So they're, they're very happy with it, despite being against it, uh, you know, vociferously in the past. Yeah. I guess there's only so much that you can do. Right. But, um, this has been great, David. It's fun. And we're kind of going through like a history of sports, I feel right. like right now. <laughs> and so with that said, we've kind of done the past, the present, and what's the future hold? Like, what are, what are you looking to do next? Are you working on any cool projects? What are you writing on? Like, what's, uh, so what do you next, have up your sleeve? Next is a little bit what I was just talking about. Um, I put together a lot of information on legal sports gambling. I believe, uh, well, more than 30 states now are allowing it. Uh, again, it used just to be one. Nevada, uh, Washington, D.C. also allows it. Wrigley Field here around where I live, they built a uh, DraftKings sports book um, huh. and other stadiums are in the process of doing that. Uh, so anyway, it, you know, there's a lot of information to compile and people to talk with, but at some point I might be interested in sort of giving a sort of, you know, overall look at how, what is the impact then of legal sports gambling on fans and how they watch games on the business of sports and, and on other aspects. Uh, so that I'd say that'd be the next uh, big, that'd be the next big sports project. Okay. I think you'll have a lot of very interested readers for that. One. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and as we're, you know, kind of hashing through this conversation, I'm thinking, you know, about where, before we got to legalize gambling, there was fantasy sports and right. It was yep. interesting right. to see because I can remember some players, I think like Le'Veon Bell one time, he would go on Twitter and he would say like, oh, I apologize to all my fantasy owners. I had an <laughs> off game or like, you know, make sure you draft me first this year. And it right. was like they did get involved in, well, it wasn't direct money for a lot of people. They were gambling with their fantasy pool, of course. Right. Um, so it's kind of like there was like a little bit of writing on the wall and a little precursor to where we're at right now through fantasy right. sports. But um, yeah, it's, it's so it's interesting because I think for for fans, it's a no brainer. It's been a they've loved it. The revenue to these leagues has to be through the roof. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen anything to the negative yet where we caught, you know, a major team literally throwing a game or a right. referee going all the way back to what we started with that is doing something as egregious as the 72 Olympics, where it's like, you know. Was that gambling motivated or was there some other sort of inspiration to do that? Yeah. No, and so. that's interesting uh, because I, in my research, I didn't find the 72 result was uh, anything involved with gambling. I think it was more national pride and, uh, sure. and the ability to make sure the U.S. could uh, could lose a game and the Soviets could win. Uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's interesting. So this is really cool. I mean, I could keep going and going talking sports on this. Yeah, definitely. Um, but anything else that you want to leave our, our listeners with as we wrap up here, Dave? Well, let's see. Uh, I mean, for three seconds in Munich, I, you know, I would just reiterate, you know, 
it's a story of evil. You have the terrorism, 11 Israeli athletes and coaches killed by Palestinian terrorists. Uh, and this was on German soil. Uh, so it reminded many people of obviously Nazi Germany. And this was the first Olympics Germany had had since Berlin and Hitler was in power. So they were trying to do everything they could to avoid the Nazi stigma. But unfortunately, uh, that, that didn't happen. It was supposed to be the games of peace and joy, but it didn't happen. And then the corruption at, at the gold medal game and the heartbreak the players felt, the U.S. players, but they stood for principle after that. Uh, they mm -hmm. rejected their silver medals to this day. And, and regarding Lamar Hunt, you know, what a fantastic uh, guy who changed the face of sports in football, soccer, tennis. Uh, he had such a huge impact. He was also very gentle, humble uh, guy who, you know, never really wanted any credit. Um, and he just quietly uh, revolutionized sports. And uh, so that, that's all I'd add. And, and Brian, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate your time, David. This was uh, so insightful. Um, I, I love history. And I think as people hear these things, especially about sports, which it seems like everybody has at least a little bit of a fascination with, uh, it's, it's right. great to kind of get this history lesson. So oh. with that said, um, thanks for your time. Everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Again, I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. We had the pleasure of speaking with David Sweet. Be sure to go out and check out his new book, Three Seconds in Munich, and his older book, but also just as good, Lamar Hunt, The Gentle Giant Who Revolutionized Professional Sports. Until next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.